2 Corinthians chapter 9, for those of you who are guests, welcome to you. Um, it's good to have you. Um, we would love to give you a gift as you leave this morning. So we'll have some ushers at the back door with some gift bags in their hands. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to have one right now, if you just slip up your hand, we'd like to give you a gift as we journey to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, or maybe someone you came with can raise their hand. Um, raise them up real high, our ushers will find you. We just want to give you a gift and say thank you for coming this morning. And, uh, if you want to take time over the next few minutes here to fill out the card in there that we have knowledge of your guest visit and pray for you, we'd love to do that. That card's inside the bag with the pen. Other than that, feel free to take everything home with you, okay? I look forward to meeting you outside afterwards. I usually circle out this way and try to head out there as far as I can to see as many people as I can. So you may not want to see me, but please know I want to see you. And if we can meet somewhere in the middle, that'd be great. All right, that'd be great. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to look at uh, verses 6 through 9 this morning and then finish chapter 9 next week, God willing, by looking at verses 10 to 15. And really this is all um, the final portion of this second section of this letter to the Corinthian people. And again, for those of you who are guests this morning, we, we take one Bible book a year and we settle down in it and we kind of study it together and try to apply it together as best we can. And um, uh, I don't know what your church background is, and we're just glad that you're here. And if we could be of encouragement to you, we'd love to be that. And uh, you can begin praying if you want. Uh, for next year, uh, we're going to be studying the book of Job together starting in January. And uh, so hopefully you'll still be here then as we journey through that book. And I'm certainly praying about what I'm going to begin preaching uh, in January of 2023. So always praying about what we should study in God's word that's timely for our flock. Let's read these verses beginning in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by his ministry, but this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for all the liberality 
of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. You probably noticed, like me, in meditating on this text, that over ten times in these final nine verses, we see a mention, either by proper name or personal pronoun, our God. When we get to verses 14 and 15 next week, we'll again rejoice regarding what God has done in our hearts regarding sharing to the needs of the flock unto the mission God has given us. And we will leave next Sunday giving thanks unto God for his indescribable gift. And all of this is sourced in his grace. You'll remember at the beginning of chapter 8, we mentioned how this second section of this letter, which is chapters 8 and 9, is bookended by the word grace. Okay. Since salvation, when we're governed by the Spirit, God is at the controls of our lives, and it's a beautiful reality. And God's grace here compels us to live a life of a share unto gospel purpose and to enjoy a life of care that God supplies for those who share. We could get very cliche about verses 6 to 15. We could call it caring for those who are sharing. I feel that would take some reverence away from the passage, to be sure. But the reality of how God operates here is clearly seen in how he cares for his people who care for his cause. He does care for the people who care for his cause. I've often wondered, wonder how much I've lost out on that. Sharing. And then understanding God's caring in all of this unto his mission. I don't want to leave this life personally, not fully knowing how capable God's grace is in sharing and receiving unto his eternal cause. God shared, didn't he? You remember chapter 8 and verse 9? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We all know this in our salvation. Jesus had everything. He's the Lagos. He's the eternal son of God. He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of us, man. And he was obedient, perfectly obedient, all the way to the death of the cross for your sin and for mine. And he did that so that we might, by grace, be gifted his righteousness, be enriched by the declaration of being declared righteousness. He took us from our poverty unto the greatest of superlative riches, the moment that we were born again, the moment we embraced Christ as our Lord and as our Savior as we turned from our sin and trusted in his righteousness. 
So this whole final passage is really about a divine reciprocity of sorts. It's not a pragmatic reciprocity. It's a divine, organic reciprocity of reality unto a cause. And I'll pray that we all see this as, as we continue. Since he's mentioned so much, let's learn about our God in this text. God's word here begins with yet another agricultural analogy. We read it, right? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The understanding of this sentence is as simply as it reads. If you plant much seed in the spring, you will have much harvest in the fall. If you plant a lot of carrots, you're going to get a lot of carrots at harvest time. The nature of the text, though, is not about quantity, but about quality. The focus is on the seed and the harvest that seed sown will bring. We've already spent much time talking about sharing according to, not out of, that which the Lord has given. So there's no need to review that this morning. So a quality seed planted in the text would be just that. A seed planted according to what we have, not according to not what we have. This is sowing bountifully. If you sow bountifully according to what God has shared with you, you will reap quality harvest. You will reap quality harvest according as you've sown. The word bountifully here is really interesting to me in the original language. It comes from our, the root Greek word euagia, which means to bless. To bless. So if you sow with the intent of being a blessing, your ability to bless others will be according to how you've sown. Throughout Scripture, the analogy of sowing and reaping is common. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 11 real quickly this morning. Okay? Hold your finger there in 2 Corinthians 9. Go over to Proverbs chapter 11. And you're probably you're sitting, if you've known your Bibles for a long period of time, your, your brain's probably popping around to these sowing, reaping contexts in the scriptures. In Proverbs, this is probably the most prominent passage in this book of poetry. And let's look at verse 24. There is one who scatters. Remember, this is a wisdom book. These are generally accepted truths of wisdom, right? We're not, we're not in present active imperative. We're not in mandate-based living here. These are just wisdom truths. Okay. There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous... And he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. But blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. That's clear, isn't it? 
Philip Hughes in his commentary says, the sphere of giving and sharing is no exception to this inexorable rule valid in the moral no less than the agricultural realm that a man reaps according to the manner in which he's sown. Go over to Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17, a couple pages to your right. So, as Solomon speaks this truth about sowing and reaping in the book of Proverbs, it is true both in the moral realm and in the agricultural realm. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to who? Lends to the Lord. It's really an act of worship, the sharing thing. It's a generally accepted truth. And he, the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Let's look at this practically in a New Testament context. Go with me to Galatians now, way over to your right. If you're a newer believer into the New Testament, way over to your right in the book of Galatians. And let's look at the sixth chapter together. Now, this is a text that we referenced several weeks ago on the distribution of that which is shared to the local church. Remember, people who are saved and spirit-filled don't need to be uh, constantly reminded to share with the needs of their local church on the gospel mission. They just do it. Remember, this whole context is, what do we do with the excess of that? Right? What do we do with the excess of that? So, the sowing and reaping thing in relationship to um, sharing with your local church Paul says here in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6, the one who is taught in the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially those who are of the household of faith. That sowing and reaping portion of this context is often taken out of context as to apply to moral sowing and moral reaping or immoral sowing and reaping the consequences of, of sowing an immoral lifestyle. But within the context of this Greek paragraph, verses 6 to 10, this is about the believer sharing with their local church. And it's a comprehensive sharing, but yet it's a prioritized sharing. It says here, hey, listen, make sure you share so that the needs of those who are teaching in the word are, word are taken care of. And then it goes into this little middle section before it gets to the point where it says, be good unto all men, but especially the household of faith. And it says, listen, if you're going to be stingy and you're sharing with your local church so that the needs of the pastor can be taken care of, right? And the needs of the people can be taken care of so they're properly fed in the word, and you're going to hold that back, that stinginess is going to have a consequence in your life. And the context actually says, if you're filled with the Spirit, 
you're sowing to the spirit in this realm, you naturally share with the body so the body can get fed, so the body can care for itself, so the body can get on with mission. So the context there is certainly distribution of what's shared. It's a prioritization of that distribution so the body can be fed, so the body can be healthy, so the body can do what? Yes, certainly do good unto all men, but never at the expense of the body. The pastor's part of the body, but the body's here. And so even here is a context of excess. You do good to the body, you care for the needs of the teacher and the sheep, so the sheep can take the excess of what you're sharing and make sure they can do good unto all men. You see that? So there's the excess. But this is how the distribution happens in the local church. So this, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this is not an unfamiliar language in Old Testament or New Testament, this sowing, reaping thing. Whatever you sow, you will reap, either in the moral realm or in the agricultural realm, uh, certainly the spiritual realm uh, as well. Again, I think it speaks to the quality of your sowing. Sowing according to what you have. And God breaks the bread of your obedience, and since he does that, we just sow. I love driving through middle Ohio and driving through farmland. And in the farmland, you see small farms, medium farms, and large farms. They all look the same. They all tend to their territory the same. They may be planting the same material, the same seed. But they're able to share or sell according to their portion of land. And they do so. In a spiritual realm... That's all the Lord's saying here through the Apostle Paul. According to, not out of, what he has shared with you, we sow. But this seed analogy cannot be disconnected from, I believe, the parable of the soils that the Lord Jesus gave. I think this is in relationship to sharing Inside the local church, you cannot disconnect that to the church's ability to cast gospel seed out as a result of making sure that their needs inside the church through sharing are also cared for. And Paul's telling the Corinthian church here, hey, keep going. You're doing a great job. Remember, this is about completion, right? They were sharing. They did have access. Excess. Now they're just talking about wrapping up the excess and getting that thing ready to be delivered. And he says, keep going. And don't ever forget, this is what God's going to do through your gift of excess. Because he's God. And God can't help himself but be God. Macedonia shared out of their smaller healthy field. And God is going to bless them. You people in Achaia, you have a little bit more in your uh, storehouse of excess. And the more you have, you give according to that. And, and certainly God is going to spiritually and practically reproduce your kind. So no, this is not about 
a gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. This is not give to get rich. As a matter of fact, the world doesn't get rich by giving, does it? The world gets rich often by hoarding, stinginess, cheating, lying, contract breaking. The world has all kinds of ways of getting rich. Investing, 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 reinvesting the interest of investments, investing, investing, investing. And if they give, it's usually for a little tax break. The Christian reality is the opposite of the world's reality. The world is not used to just giving or sharing. That's just what the believer does in the local church. Why? Because we know God, God will. And you'll see that here in just a little bit. So, verse 7. How do we do this? A re-explication of some things we saw really in chapter 8. Each one, underline that. All right? So, as we go through this portion of Scripture, I think it's important that each of you, even if you're married, you've got to draw the circle around yourself. You've got to analyze this portion of Scripture for you as an individual. Each one must do just as he has purposed. That word purposed here does mean premeditative planning. It does mean that, folks. That's how the Corinthian people would have heard it. So there's got to be a time where it appears here that before the Lord, because this is something that's done in your heart, that's the next prepositional phrase, that you, in your heart, before the Lord, have some type of planning of how I am going to share for the needs of the flock so everyone doing that in the flock can take its excess and help with the needs of other, like, the needs of other like-minded flocks unto gospel purposes. I got a plan. I have to plan. Certainly if you're married, I hope the one plus one equals one in your marriage in that regard and that the you can plan. It's the we and not the me that's planning uh, in, a, in a good marriage. Where both are saved, and I understand that sometimes that's not the situation. But then you still, as the only saved partner in a marriage, you have to really, really ask God for wisdom how you're going to work this out in your life, especially if you have a spouse that's opposed to this in your life. And I've talked to many of you in our congregation that are in that situation, and we've talked through and prayed for God's special wisdom on how to do that. Right? But Paul's writing here to save people. He's asking them to individually plan, make sure it's done out of heart consideration. Right? And he says here, not grudgingly or, or under compulsion. Grace doesn't force. Grace doesn't coerce. Grace just compels. The word grudgingly means here unhappily or with regret or sadness. 
We don't want to share unhappily. This is, this is great opportunity. We're going to see that in a moment, even more. Not under compulsion. This is not something that's just a necessary obligation. And we all, it's kind of hard for us in our, in our time to separate that, that planning from that obligation, right? Because usually we plan to do obligations. But in Paul's language here, we plan for opportunity, not just obligation. Our heart is always, the God's grace is always effervescing in our hearts to the sharing to, under the purpose, under the cause of the mission. So this is, this is not obligatory for Paul. And apparently for the Corinthian church, it was not obligatory either, right? It's just how grace develops every believer, right? It's not how, how, how you do this and how I do this and then comparing even each other's how we do this. This is each one, right? Plans and then does according to the truth of the text. And that certainly is a Holy Spirit thing to be sure. But we know it always yields when everyone's participating in an excess. So again, there's a disposition that goes along with the opportunity. And I think that disposition is naturally and a happy one because it is an opportunity and not an obligation. Does that make sense? I don't want to squeeze too much out of this. Right? If it's an obligation, it can be merely a uh, a thing that we drudge through, right? All of us have things we just drudge through in life. We just, we have to do it. We got to do it. We're going to do it, right? That's, that's not apparently when the Spirit's involved and when God's grace is compelling, that's, that's like not the disposition here. It's like, it's like the Macedonians earlier in chapter 8, they were begging to give. That, that, that's, that's completely countercultural in our time too, isn't it? Everyone to the seat. Everyone is saying, Pastor, how can, when can I? Really? What's the need? What? 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 Like on the edge of your seat. That's what grace does, right? It's edge of your seat. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Because you understand how God's grace has done that for you. And we just do, do, do. If you're back in the seat of your heart, and you're saying, no, I got this, I'll control this, you're completely missing the point here. You're not at the controls here. God's grace is, and this is what God's grace does, for me, for you, to the person. And this is the disposition that comes along with it. Grace allows the joy of the harvest Grace allows the joy of the harvest to be in view during the early days of planting and sowing. So there's to be no grief, unhappiness, or mere sense of obligation in the sowing stage. And my goodness, I used that garden analogy with my family last week, right? And in those early days of sowing, there were those middle days of weeding and watering. There were some times as a little kid when I wasn't able to do all the heavy work yet, 
my dad would bring me out to the garden and he would always wear a white t-shirt and his shorts when he was out tilling or planting or, or weeding and my only job sometimes would be to sit there with my hand and slap mosquitoes on his back <laughs> right that's all I did I would just walk hold a hole or plant to plant and I would just whack 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 right those were hard those are hard days I I tell you what what made it worth it though was late July early August you know he'd pull up with the headlights shine on the garden right and you'd see those clean furrowed rows You'd see well-weeded. You'd see the plant material coming out in uniform fashion. And we would just sit there with the headlights at night on the garden and just think about the harvest. The sowing, the harvest was always in view in the sowing. And that gave us hope. But he's not done here. Here's a portion of scripture that it's really hard to find someone explicate in the sense of how the Corinthian believer would have heard it. (laughs) So I'm going to try to do the best I can. So hang on with me here. And those of you that are studying in your own uh, resources with me through this, if you've come across something that clarifies this, please share that with me. I'd love to have that conversation with you. For God, last phrase of verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, we always jump to the end of that phrase. We always jump to the dispositional side of that. And it's usually done in an environment of some type of manipulation or coercion. In other words, we have to manipulate or coerce people to joy. And don't forget, when you... Fulfill your obligation to share. You better be happy. Because God loves that kind of dude. Right? That's not the context. At all. Sometimes it's like really hard for us to unthink something we've heard and meditated on for a long time. The emphasis here is again is on God. We find our motivation to share from him. And it says here, God loves a cheerful giver. Whew. This is hard for me. We all know what cheerful means. It comes from that root word that we have in our English language, which means hilarious, right? God loves that hilarious giver. That's cool. We get that. That's the slam dunk part of this. Where's the hilarity sourced? We know it's sourced in God's grace, not our, not, our, not our discipline to just fulfill an obligation. Sourced in God's grace, it's constantly developing us to grow in Christ's likeness and understand what it means to serve and worship in this way. Yes, the goal is really on the prize of the harvest. That's some motivation for sure in the context, but it says here... A primary motivation is God loves. I thought God loved everybody. I'm sitting here 
trying to tear this text apart as best I can. I'm thinking, God loves. Well, I can't remember another time in the whole Bible where it says God loves someone for doing something like this. Or God has a special love for someone that does something like this. Or like anything. We know that God has a, a love for the world, right? For God so loved the world, he did something, right? He sent his only begotten son into the world, right? That whoever would believe in him would not know eternal condemnation, but would have eternal life. So God loved those he's created in his image, and he demonstrated that love by sending one Amen. who could take all their sin upon himself, incur the full wrath of God on him, his son, so that if all come to his son and ask for forgiveness of their sin, they'll know peace and joy as they invite him by faith to be Lord of their lives. God loves the world that way. When you do accept that demonstration of love and it goes from a, a broad demonstration of love to an exclusive application of love for you when you accept the gift and, and, and act on the gift of faith in Jesus Christ you know, you know redemptive love you know the love of righteousness you're declared perfect because of Jesus the moment that you trust him we love him because he first loved us and, and he continues to love his son in us. Therefore, we're perfectly loved. Jesus said, I, I love my own and I'll love them until the end of the age. But the love here is not that love. It's not, the, it's not a description of the previous two kinds of love. He says here, God loves. And it's not... The root Greek where we get our English word friendship love. It's not a, you know, a friendship cordial kind of love. It's not philos, it's agape. So I really struggle with this. God loves. There's something, not extra special, but there's something, can I say, unique about this kind of love that God demonstrates to his children when they get this sharing thing. I just said, Lord, give me an illustration to try to convey what's being said here. And this is what came to mind. I can sit in my living room on Christmas morning and observe my children. I, like you, love all of them equally. That's never going to change. But let's say while all the busy things of Christmas morning are going on, there's one of those kids that decides to quietly break away to the kitchen and bring each of us in the family room some breakfast cake and a coffee or orange juice. After a while, that same kid is compelled to go get the trash bag and starts picking up all the wrapping paper and boxes, etc., that were remaining after gift opening. And if that wasn't enough, he separates all the gifts according to each person's name and offers to carry those gifts to their bedrooms for safekeeping for later. He's like, who's that kid? Right? 
But I'm just saying, if that was the case, <laughs> you'd be sitting on your couch observing all this quietly, and you'd be asking your same thing, like, who's this kid? Amen. Right? Wow. You love them all the same, but this, this, one, this one really understood somehow, some way, that he's been lavished this morning with a lot of good gifts. And he can't help himself but to give back this way. And it's a privilege for him to do that or for her to do that. It's a joy. And they're not even looking for a pat on the back. They're not looking for an attaboy or they're not looking for, hey, he's a chip off the old block. See, sweetheart, you know, I did have an influence. It's not that at all, right? This is the kid that just does it because he's overwhelmed with what he's been gifted. And he's going to do it whether his siblings or anyone else in the room helps out or not. Right? And in that moment, while you love all of your kids the same, there's a unique admiration for that one. There's a unique appreciation for that one and this doesn't destroy positional truth, folks. But all I'm saying is that I can't find anything else in the Bible to compare this to. It's here, and it's got to be addressed. And I'm trying to explain it as best I can. There's a unique admiration for that one while you equally admire all. And that admiration is, wow, they really understand the grace of sharing. They got it. And their natural impulse is to do this. God loves. There's an admiration, a unique admiration for you, for me, if we get this. Then we'll finish this morning, verse 8, and God, again, is mentioned here. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor and his righteousness endures forever. We'll introduce this and then we'll pick this up next week. God is able. Well, first of all, God is would you agree? Amen. That's a statement of his eternality. Amen. God eternally exists. God is self-defining. God is self-authenticating. Right? God is immutable. Right? He's all-powerful. He's all of those attributes of his greatness, and he's everything of his attributes of his goodness. God is. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is. God is faithful. He that has called you is faithful, who will always bring it to pass. God is. God just is. He's that eternal constancy that we know because we know Jesus Christ. Amen. So God is is all these things but he's able he's omnipotently think about this 
He's omnipotently able. No one could ever paralyze God's omnipotence. No one could even touch it. There are those who have tried at Babel. That worked out well. Every time God, people tried to wrap their minds around, let alone touch the person of who God was, silly us, right? God is able. In return for the saints' cheerful sharing, while they're enjoying this unique admiration for the sharing that grace has taught them to do, you'll garner a unique love and you will realize the superlative ability of God to care for you and his flock. You read it twice this morning with me. The use, the repetitious use of the word all in verse 8. Colin Cruz in his commentary and some of you know this if you're linguists. Uh, this is called paranomasia. It's the repetition of the words having the same stem, and the same stem is all. Paul uses about every uh, form of this word all known to the Greek language at that time in this verse. And we'll examine the superlative language for this word all, but God is able To make all grace abound to you. And that's where he steps off into speaking about God's ability. And he steps off first and foremost to reminding them how grace first introduced itself to their lives. That's what he's doing here, as I understand it, in the language. God is able to make all grace abound. And grace made its introduction into your life and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace, because it's in Christ, is eternal and it never has a off switch. You can't even dim it. Amen. It just is what it is. And he's to be able to make all grace abound to you in Jesus Christ. Spiritually, and then practically, the word abound here is, in the Greek language, it's an aorist infinitive. That just simply means that there was a time where God's grace began to abound in you and it continues to abound in you. And I believe the language here points back to that conversion time when grace stepped into your life in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, so God's ability in a superlative way underpins your sharing when it's done with the right heart. And then next week as we gather together, we'll look at what it means to have all sufficiency. Powerful, powerful word, sufficiency. And we'll look at all of the superlative language here and make application to it as we wrap up through verse 15 next week. All right? So let's pray together, and we'll continue our journey seven days from now. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you so much for the simple and practical understanding of this text. And um, 
We ask, Lord, that you would, by your grace, govern us with your spirit, continue to teach us what this means. So as a body, everyone here that says, I know Jesus, would be governed by grace, filled with the spirit, so that we might understand what it means to sow bountifully in a qualitative way and to reap bountifully in a qualitative way. I pray, Lord, that this congregation would know, starting with its pastors, the truth of this text. So that we might know this, this admiration, practically, from you. We love to be loved, Lord. We certainly want to be loved in the way that you want to love. So as our capable God, we, we long for wisdom and how that actually looks and is. And we look forward to your helping us. In Jesus' name, amen.